0: father i pray that you would minister to our hearts i pray yeah. um with clarity the the gospel yeah, um, and i pray that you would just anoint him to deliver the message that you've laid on his heart i pray that he would be led by your spirit and that he would um have um the clarity that he needs to be faithful to the, the message that you yes given him, father. lord give us give us open hearts and an open ears jesus to receive what whatever it is that you want to pour out this morning yes, in jesus lord. name amen amen thanks brother Wow! Good morning, saints. It is a blessing to be here with you all this morning, and I'm not sure if Sunday school was canceled because of the anointing service or it's because you knew I was preaching. (laughs) Maybe both, huh, bro? (laughs) Um, Yeah, praise God! It's a blessing to be here this morning. Um, I did not intend when I asked uh, to, to about coming. I didn't intend to to preach, and in fact, when Brother Joe called me and and asked me about bringing the word this morning. I took a day or so to wrestle in prayer and sought a multitude of counselors. and uh, I, I, I called them back to decline that I wouldn't be speaking because uh, praise God, our entire fellowship is here. our entire fellowship, is here this morning. What a tremendous blessing. And I had a desire, we all had a desire for our, our local church to experience the broader body of Christ and the gifts of the body in, the, in the, the broader body. They've heard quite a bit of me recently, and I wanted them to get an opportunity to hear from other uh, gifted brothers. However, as I called Joe uh, jo back to decline, it became very evident that actually the Lord wanted me to speak this morning. So instead of declining, Uh, God gave me a word, and I believe it is for everyone present here this morning. God's given a word uh, for everyone present here this morning. And it's a question. It's an invitation. And I trust that the Lord will um, not allow his word to return unto him void. Quick question. How many of you remember the Yoders, the Mennonite singers, the Yoders? Oh, my, much fewer than I thought. How many of you know the song? Um, Oh, Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father and merciful Lord, we come to you now one mind in accord. All right, that's enough of us to sing this song, right? So let's open up with this song as a prayer from our hearts that God would do this, that he would pour out his blessing and spirit upon us. Daniel, can you lead us, bro, in that? Ish? All right. Lee, Father. Merciful Lord, we come to you now in one mind and accord. We are so undeserving to make this request, but with your sweet spirit. Lord, let us be blessed. Open the windows and pour out a blessing. Shower your power upon us, we pray. Send such a blessing. We cannot contain it. Lord, open the windows of heaven today. So often we've witnessed your power so strong. But yesterday's blessings Are all past and gone Once again we completing And mentally we pray And that's why we lift up Our voices to say open the windows and pour out a blessing. Shower your power upon us, we pray. And such a blessing, we cannot contain it. Lord, open the windows of heaven today. Hallelujah. Father, we come to you one more time and we're asking you, Lord, according to the riches of your mercy... According to the greatness of your power, that you would open the windows, God, and that you would pour out a blessing upon us. Your blessing, the blessing of God. And may it be one so great, Lord, that we can't keep it in. That we can't keep it in, but out of the abundance and overflow of our hearts that have been blessed by God, that we, we share Lord, we can't contain, but we share. We overflow. We pour it out to our family, to our friends, to our co workers, to the world around us, to every nation, God. May we share your blessing that you pour out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The question the Lord has put on my heart this morning for us all is this Will you burn? Will you burn? And I'm not talking about hell this morning. I'm talking about the fire of God. One of the greatest needs in the church of God today, I believe with all my heart, one of the greatest needs in the church is the fire of God. For a restoration of the fire of God, that very fire that Jesus said he would baptize with, this isn't just some exciting message, revival message, this is a promise of God and this is what Jesus came to do. He said that. One comes before me, who is John the Baptist, who had baptized with what? Water. And that was unto repentance. But Jesus said, I come and I baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire." fire. Fire. The church, the people of God, needs the fire of God that Jesus came to baptize with. And this morning the question is will you burn? will you burn? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62, Isaiah chapter, chapter 62 for our text. Isaiah chapter 62, and to set the stage for reading this text together, we're going to sing another song. I know y'all love this. I love it. Acapella especially. So we're going to sing another song. Psalm 48. Psalm 48 is going to set the stage for our Text uh, this morning, Psalm 48, is what we're going to sing together. And that's Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness. We won't sing the whole time, but we're going to sing one more time. All right, brother, can you start us? Great is the Lord. the The Lord to be praised in the city of our God. In the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. One more time. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation, joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, a city of the great King. Amen. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What's the city of our God? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem the city of God? Because Jerusalem is the city which contained the mountain of His holiness. What's the mountain of His holiness? Mount Zion. Right there in the psalm, Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Mount Zion, Mount Zion was the holy mountain. It was the mountain of God. Why was Zion the holy mountain? It's where the temple was built. It's where the temple was built. And what's the significance of the temple? It's where his spirit was. The temple of God, which was in the city of God, on the mountain of God, Was where God, in all of His awesomeness and His beauty, His glory, it's where He dwelt on earth, in His temple. And now, who is the temple of God? The church. The church, Sister Anna, we are. We are the temple. God no longer lives in temples and buildings made by human hands, but he lives in the human heart. We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of the awesomeness, of the holiness, of the beauty, of the glory of God in us. We are his temple. So Old Testament Jerusalem and Old Testament Zion are a type of the New Testament church, which is us, which is us. Every, every individual who has been born again by the spirit of God is made a member of the body of Christ, which is the church of God. And this is now the dwelling place of God. That's us. Let's look at Acts. uh, Sorry, not Acts. Isaiah chapter 62 Isaiah chapter sixty-two. Before I read that, just to affirm which you all know this, but Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's us. That's us. We're being built together as living stones upon the chief cornerstone to be the dwelling place of God on earth. That's us. And Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 2. So now Isaiah chapter 62, starting at verse 1. For Zion's sake, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and kings, your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said of you forsaken. Nor to you, nor to your land, will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. King James says, "My delight is in her, and your land Beulah, which means married. For the Lord delights in you, and to Him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God." Will rejoice over you. God will rejoice over us. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have I have appointed watchmen, all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, you who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give. Him no rest. Give Him no rest until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So it's a call to us to take no rest and give Him no rest until something happens, until Jerusalem is made a praise in the earth. I want to go back to verse 1 and read it one more time to hone in on the message, the question this morning. For, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. So here we have Isaiah speaking in the prophetic. And Isaiah speaking as a type of Christ, as a type of Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father ever living to make intercession for us. Jesus, ever living to make intercession for us. So he's praying. He's praying. And Isaiah says here, as a type of Christ, that he will give himself no rest. He will not keep silent. He won't hold his peace. And neither neither will Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, praying, infinitely intense prayers of intercessions for the church, for Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, that what? That she would have her sins forgiven and come every Sunday and enjoy singing songs and live nice, quaint, moral lives that maybe if someone's really interested, they might come one day, get the courage up to knock on your door and say, hey, I like these things about you. Um, Can you share the gospel with me? Is that what Jesus is praying for? Maybe a little bit, but a whole lot more, right, brother? A whole lot more. That her righteousness would go forth like brightness. And her salvation, this work that God has done within her, would go forth like a torch that is burning. A lamp that is burning. This is what Jesus is praying. Not according to some revelation I've had, but according to the revelation of God. Isaiah chapter 62. Jesus will not keep quiet Until the righteousness of the church goes forth like brightness and like a torch that's burning. And so my question to you this morning, will you burn? Will you burn? It was Jesus while he walked the earth who said, let your light so shine before men that they might what? See your good deeds and glorify your father which is in heaven. Glorify. The purpose of them seeing your lives is to glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And John Wesley said something like, you're not going to shine if you don't burn. And you're not going to burn unless you're on fire. And it was A.W. Tozer who referred to the church down through the ages as the Fellowship of the Burning Hearts. The Fellowship of the Burning Hearts. Are you a part of the Fellowship of the Burning Hearts this morning? Are you burning? Will you burn? That's the question. That's the question. Uh, I'm going to, in the next little time that we have together, focus on three points. Number one, what does it mean to burn? Define our terms. What does it mean to burn? We talk about the fire of God. Charismatic circles you hear the fire 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 the fire of God all the time What in the world does it mean what is the fire of God? So let's define our terms number one number two We're going to look at who is the ultimate example of the burning heart And what is the source of the burning heart the ultimate example in the source and then number three We want to look at the practical lifestyle lived For all you anabaptists the practical lifestyle lived by the burning heart ...by the burning heart. So those will be the three things we focus on here this morning. First of all, what does it mean to burn? What is a burning heart? This is a tremendously important point, not only because it's going to set the foundation for all that we talk about... ...in the rest of the message this morning, but also because we face a tragedy in the church today. We face a tragedy in the church today... Even though Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, praying these infinitely intense prayers, it says that he's not going to rest. He's not going to be silent. He's not going to cease or stop until this happens in the church. Until we're a people with burning hearts and this fire goes out into all the world. Even though that's the case, it's like, where is the fire? Where is this fire? Where is the fire of God and the people of God? You know, there was a day when the communists had a much greater understanding of what it means to burn for a cause than the church did. And I want to look at this little excerpt taken from a letter. There was a young college student in Mexico who had converted to, to communism, and he was engaged, and he wrote a letter to his fiance to explain to her why he had to break off the engagement due to his newfound love of communism. Listen to what he said. This is to his fiance to break off the engagement. He said, We communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep alive. We communists don't have time, don't have the time or money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy we have a cause to fight for a definite purpose in life We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. Wow. There's one thing in which I am in dead earnest And that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude towards it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I am ready to go before the firing squad. Wow. Wow. Communism. It's natural. It's false. It's of man. Maybe it's of the devil. And what about us? What about us? Do not we have something infinitely greater to burn with and to burn for? And look at Islam. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world today. 25,000, over 25,000 college students in America are converting to Islam every year. And if current trends continue by the year 2070, Islam will be the largest religion in the world. If current trends continue, if their growth rate continues. In 2070, I'll be 88 years old. My sons will be in their 50s and 60s. Lord willing, I'll have grandchildren. I'll still be here. And God forbid that Islam dominates the world in which we live. But what's going to stop it? What's going to stop it? We are. As we allow the prayer and longing of Christ... To be fulfilled in our hearts. In our hearts. So what does it mean to burn? What is this fire of God? Well, first of all, before I give the exact definition, I just want to say it's supernatural. It's supernatural. I'm not talking to you about a personality. Oh, Jordan, you're an extrovert. You're charismatic. You have always been like this. So you're one of those... Denny Keniston's who just gets up there and gets excited. No, that's not what the fire of God is. It's not an emotional state. It's not a level of emotional excitement and intensity. That's not the fire of God. See, the fire of God is for everyone from the youngest child who's born again to the oldest brother or sister who's born again. That's who the fire of God is for. So number one, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. It's a spiritual state of heart that Jesus brings about. And what is it? Here it is. Here's the definition. I'll give it twice. To burn means to be inflamed with a wholehearted commitment to and all consuming passion for the glory of God and the victorious advance of His kingdom. One more time, to burn with this fire means to be inflamed with a wholehearted commitment. It's all, it's all wholehearted commitment to and all-consuming passion for the glory of God and the victorious advance of his kingdom. This is what it means to burn. And every child that's born again all the way up to the oldest among us must have this fire of God. So don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean you can't have other commitments. And it doesn't mean you can't have other passions. We hunt, right, Brother John? And we're passionate about it. But every single commitment in our life is from God and is for God. Every other passion in our life is from God and for God. We hunt and we fish, we work and we eat and we drink all for what? The glory of God. We see God in all things. And we exalt God in all things. So every commitment and every passion is brought into subjection to this one great passion. This one great commitment. God, we want you to be glorified. We want you to be glorified and we want your kingdom. Your kingdom to advance victorious on the earth. This is what it means to burn. I want to read you a description by Bishop J.C. Riley. Bishop J. C. Riley, listen to how he describes the burning heart. Bishop J.C. Riley says, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. It's not enough to say that. He only sees one thing, he cares for one thing. Thing. And that one thing is to please God, is to please God, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness. And that's tough, isn't it? In sickness, whether he has health, whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases men or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought of. Whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he is made to burn. And if consumed in the very burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Such and one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach and work and give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. If yes, if he is only a pauper on a perpetual bed of sickness, he will make the wheels of sin around him drive heavily by continually interceding against it. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will do the work of Moses, Aaron, and Hur on the hill. If he is cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till help is raised up from another quarter and the work is done. Sounds like the text we read today in Isaiah. He will give the Lord no rest until somebody else can rise up and meet the need that he himself can't. This is the burning heart. I trust you're, you're catching a vision of what it means to burn, So it implies both inwardly to a spiritual state where it's our motive and all that we do, we're wanting to glorify God. And it's a passion within us to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. So it's, it's inwardly, it's a motive and it's a passion. Outwardly, it's expressed in an attitude and in a lifestyle. This is the burning heart. This is what it means to burn. Let's look at our second point. Who is the ultimate example Of the burning heart. And what is the source of the burning heart? Can anybody guess this morning? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. We see in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate example. Of the burning heart. Before we touch on the source. How or where do we see this in Jesus? We see it in his coming. We see it in his. His praying. (coughs) Excuse me. We see it in his living and we see it in his dying. His coming, his praying, his living and his dying. Let's look at that quickly here. In his coming, we see the burning heart of Christ. This passion, this God-saturated passion for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. We see it in his coming. The whole foundation for the incarnation, the sufferings, the death and the resurrection of Christ, the whole foundation for it is the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we have a tendency to look at sin as just like, like disobedience, violation against the law, uh, law of God, trespassing. And it's almost more in these legal terms. But you know at its heart what sin is? Not saying that's wrong. Sin is a rejection of God. But, but at its heart, sin is falling short of the glory of God. We were made to see and to savor God. We were made to reflect back to Him in worship the divine excellencies of His nature. We were made to be instruments of His glory that reflect that. And when we fail to value Him for who He is, when we fail to see Him as He is and, and, and savor Him as we ought and value Him, when we fail to respond rightly, we're falling short of that glory. And it's for that reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to give us a vision again once we lost it of who God is. No man has seen the Father at any time. But what happened? Jesus came and He revealed Him. He revealed him. So Jesus showed us the Father. He showed us the glory of God. We behold it in the face of Jesus Christ. And then additionally, he made it so that we could be transformed back into that place of true spiritual worshipers who see God, who worship God, who glorify God. This is why Jesus came to restore us to that place. So in his very coming... We see an example of the burning heart, that passion for the glory of God to be restored in the people of God. Secondly, in his praying, we refer to Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13 as the Lord's prayer, as the Lord's prayer. And what do, what do we see in Christ's example to us in praying right after he addresses God as his holy father? He says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy. Reverenced is your name and right after that what does he say he cries out in his prayer he says thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven this is his heart cry in his prayer and as he teaches us to pray god holy father Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it like in heaven? Oh, that we could go there for a moment. And we can because in the Spirit and by the Spirit, we're seated in heavenly places, aren't we? And what's it like in heaven? Heaven is a place where our God reigns, where he rules, where his glory is unhindered where all of his beautiful attributes are manifested in their greatness in an unhindered way. And all around see it, and they worship him. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it's a place of beautiful, pure, spiritual worship. And Jesus taught us to pray. Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want heaven on earth. And Jesus taught us to pray that way. That, heaven, that earth would be a place where God dwells in all of his glory. And that the earth be filled with worshipers just like heaven is. So he was an example of a burning heart in his praying. Thirdly, in his living. In his living. In John 4:34, Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was his meat. So his meat, Jesus' food, his nourishment, that which sustained him, that which brought him delight, that which kept him going, was to do God's will, was to do the work that he was sent to do. He said in John 8, 29, I do always those things that please him. Remember Bishop Riley's definition of a burning heart? He says that 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 burning heart, that person has one goal, and that's to please the father in all things. Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. He took no breaks, always includes all times and excludes no times. Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. And so in his living, he was an example to us of a burning heart. In fact, I think the most stirring example we have, picture we have of Christ's burning heart was in John chapter 2 when Jesus came upon the temple. And this was that place where up to that point God was dwelling. It was a place that was to be Where God could be seen and saved, loved, and worshipped rightly. And Jesus came and he saw these religious people turning the house of God into a den of thieves. Defiling God's house. And what did he do? He made a whip of cords. And he turned over tables. And he drove them out of the temple. Because there was something inside of him. There was something. There was a zeal for God's house. A zeal for God's house. For the purity of God's house. For that place where God is to dwell and be seen. And for God to be worshipped. Jesus is like, no, don't do it. How can you do this? How can you defile the house, the dwelling place of my father? And so he drove them all out. You know, it's that same zeal in the heart of Christ, which is leading him to pray right now for you and me and for his church. That's why he's praying. He's wanting us to be righteous, not a house of thieves, not a den of thieves and robbers. He doesn't want us to be defiled and impure. He wants us to be a spotless, holy dwelling place of God. Zeal for my father's house has eaten me up, Jesus said. It consumed him. And so we see in his coming, we see in his praying, we see in his living this burning heart that Jesus had for the glory of his father in the advance of his kingdom. And lastly, in his dying. In his dying. When Jesus came to die, there's what we refer to as the high priestly prayer in John chapter 14 through 17. And in chapter 17, Jesus In talking to the Father, he says, verses four and five, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus said, I've glorified you on the earth. I've I've done that. I've I've fulfilled the mission. I'm coming to the end of the mission. And then he asked God to to glorify him. He asked the father to glorify him. And you could say, well, that that sounds kind of selfish. But think about the implications of this prayer. Jesus wasn't only longing to be back in that place with the triune God, where there was this rich fellowship and glory that was occurring in the Godhead, the father, the son and the spirit. He's like, I want to go back there. The glory I had before the world was he did want that. But you know what else? him being glorified, when he said, Father, glorify thou me, he realized, as he said, obviously, in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, that unless he goes back to the Father and is glorified at his right hand, he wouldn't be able to pour out the promise of God upon all flesh. Remember when he spoke of those living waters, those streams of living water, in John chapter 7? It says, this spake he of the Spirit, who had not yet come because what? Jesus had not yet been glorified. So he's saying, God, I'm at the end. Let's do this thing. Glorify me because I want my mission to truly and fully be accomplished where all these people who have fallen short of your glory... Where they can be, I'm going to go to your right hand, I'm going to pour out the Spirit, tongues of fire is going to come. I'm going to baptize with the Spirit and fire, and the world can be filled with red-hot worshipers of God again. i got to do this, so glorify me. Let's do this. And it was Jesus seeing the the, the multitudes redeemed and made back into red-hot worshipers of God. It was that vision that gave him joy. And for the joy that was set before him, he did what? Endured the cross. He saw it. And so he went to the cross and he suffered and he died. Because he saw what was going to come about. He saw the glory of his father. So for the joy beset him before him, he endured the cross. We see the example of a burning heart in Christ in his dying. And then what is the ultimate source? What is the source, the only source of the burning heart? I shared with you already, this is supernatural. I'm not talking about a sanguine, extrovert, people person, charismatic. I'm not talking about emotions here. It was said of Jonathan Edwards when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you all know I'm not a Calvinist. But it was said of Jonathan Edwards when he preached that sermon that brought the second great awakening to I'm sorry, the first great awakening to the Americas in a, in a significant way. It said he, he just stood there and read that sermon. Y'all don't have to yell and jump up and down and even do it like I'm doing it. All you need is the fire of God within you, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and God will come. That's the fire of God. So the source, what is the source? It's supernatural, and there's no man or woman of any age, no child who has ever burned or who can burn without it being Christ himself within us. He is ultimately the burning heart. He said, I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And when we receive the Spirit of God, when Christ is formed in us by faith, we receive him. We receive the fire of God. And ultimately, it's his... Remember I said he's the example? Ultimately... It's him in us that's burning. So we can testify with Paul that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I, but Christ in me. Christ is the fire. He is the source of the burning heart, and we can't have this life unless we have this Christ. He is the source of the burning heart. Finally, the last point to this morning's message is, let's look at the practical lifestyle lived by those who burn. The twofold purpose for our earthly existence is love and war. And that's a whole message and series in and of itself. And I think I preached it here at the Youth Bible School years ago. I did a whole series, not just a message, but a whole series out in Montana, both for the youth Bible school, then for the men's conference on love and war as the twofold purpose for our earthly existence. That's why we're here. We're here for love and we're here for war. For love, it's to know God intimately, to be one with the God who made us, to share in his perfect love and enjoy the fellowship of the Godhead. This is love. We're here to share in love. So that's that's love. And then. We're not just made for that, which much of the church focuses just on love. Like, we're here to, for God so loved the world. And it's true. And I don't want to diminish that by any means. By any means. Um, but a lot of the church forgets about this other, this other aspect of our purpose and our calling. We're also here for, love, for war. Our God is love, and he's warrior God. Jehovah is a warrior And what is he warring against? Well, we join him from that place of intimacy, from that place of fellowship, from that place of being one with him. Passionate lovers become passionate warriors. We go from that place and with him, we join him in fighting against evil until we bring every enemy of God in subjection to Christ as an eternally defeated footstool under his feet. Do you know that's the most repeated prophecy throughout scripture is about making the enemies of Christ a footstool under his feet? And that's our mission as the church. We're here to love and we're here to war. We're joining God by his power in defeating every, every aspect of evil, every enemy of God until everyone is brought into subjection to Christ as an eternally defeated footstool under his feet until they go to hell, which was created for the devil and all his angels. Every aspect of evil will be defeated, but not until you and I rise up and allow our, our lives to be a fulfillment of the prayer of Christ. So this is a twofold purpose for our existence, and when it comes to the lifestyle lived by the burning heart, I like to refer to it as a wartime lifestyle. A wartime lifestyle that's fueled by love, but the lifestyle is wartime. And some of you are familiar with the book by Ralph Winter called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. I know some of you have read it or large large portions of it. And this wartime lifestyle, I didn't coin this phrase. I got it from Ralph Winter. And I, I, I like it a lot because in this article, he talks about the difference between a wartime lifestyle and a peacetime lifestyle. And individuals live very differently toward, in times of war. When their nation is at war, they live very differently during these times, especially, especially in past times. Now it's almost like, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine and even what went on in Afghanistan for two decades, we can almost just be um, oblivious to it because of the world in which we now live. But... But there was a day when war was gripping, particularly the wars uh, in the context which Ralph Winter talks here about. And when your nation is at war, it's, you live very differently than when you're, at, when you're at peace, when all is well and peace marks your borders. So what am I talking about? What is the difference between the wartime and the peacetime lifestyle? Ralph Winter, in his book, he talks about uh, a ship called the Queen Mary. And he illustrates the vast difference between wartime lifestyle, wartime living, and peacetime living. Uh, He illustrates this by talking about the Queen Mary, which was a ship. I did some research on the Queen Mary, and this is what I found, so I'm going to read you a little history real quick. The Queen Mary was a gigantic luxury ocean liner constructed in the 1930s. This magnificent ship was designed to sail the North Atlantic and provide a weekly express service from Southampton, England, all the way over to New York. When she sailed on her maiden voyage from Southampton, England on May 27, 1936, the Queen Mary, weighing over 80,000 tons and measuring over 1,000 feet in length, became the largest liner yet built, surpassing her great rival, Normandy. She was designed to carry 3,000 passengers in luxury and ease across the North Atlantic Seas. In early September 1939, the Queen Mary set out for New York from Southampton. By the time she arrived, the Second World War had started, and she was ordered to stay where she was, joining her rival Normandy. In 1940, the pair were also joined by Queen Mary's running mate, Queen Elizabeth. Rather than keeping them bottled up, it was decided to use them as troop ships, as troop ships. So the Queen Mary left New York for Sydney, Australia, where she, along with several other liners, was converted into a troop ship to carry Australian and New Zealand soldiers to the United Kingdom. Did you hear she was converted? She was converted into a troop ship. Eventually joined by the Queen Elizabeth, they were the largest and fastest troop ships involved in the war, often carrying as many as 15,000 men in a single voyage and often traveling out of convoy and without escort. During this period, because of their wartime gray camouflage, livery and elusiveness, both queens received the nickname the Grey Ghost. Because of their size and prestige, their sinking was such a high priority for Germany that Adolf Hitler offered the equivalent of $250,000 and the Iron Cross to the U-boat commander that could sink them. However, their high speed meant that it was virtually impossible for U-boats to catch them. For the next six years, the Queen Mary faithfully served these emergency wartime purposes. And after the war, the Queen Mary returned to its original intent and dominated the transatlantic passenger trade until she was retired from service in 1967. Today, the Queen Mary lies in repose in the harbor at Long Beach in California. Her retired state as a hotel and fascinated museum of the past has made her quite a tourist attraction. I've been told that if one visits the ship today, the stark contrast between the lifestyle's appropriate during peacetime and wartime, become glaringly evident. On the one side, now listen to these differences in wartime and peacetime with this ship. On the one side of the partition, the evidence... I'm sorry, on... On the one side of the partition, you see the dining room reconstructed to depict the luxury liner's peacetime table setting that was appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture for whom a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mysteries. On the other side of the partition, the evidences of the troop ship's wartime austerities are in sharp contrast. One metal tray with indentations replaces 15 plates and saucers. Bunks, not just double high, but eight tiers high, explain why the peacetime complement of 3,000 gave way to 15,000 people on board in wartime. Can you imagine how repugnant the peacetime luxury lovers to the, the peacetime luxury lovers this transformation must have been? Such a radical transformation could have only been brought about by a national emergency. The urgency and greatness of the cause necessitated the giving up of finer things to employ the ship's maximum usefulness. The survival of millions depended on it. Is there not a cause today? Is there not a cause today? Is there not something much greater than a national emergency that we're facing? Are we not facing a world in which the one true God, our Father, is being dishonored and billions of souls are lost? Is there not a cause that's greater? Are we not at war? What are are we doing about it? How are we living? When we catch this vision, when we receive this burning heart, We're not going to be content any longer to have this self-centered, luxury-loving, peacetime mentality. It's not going to be okay for us anymore. We just can't do it because we're at war. There's a God who deserves the glory due His name. And there's multitudes and multitudes who are lost. And we have a mission. And we've been commissioned And so we're going to be converted. Our lifestyles are going to change. We're no longer going to be the luxury lovers during peacetime who have all the finer things, who prioritize ease and comfort and convenience. What does that mean? Well, we're going to be careful. We're going to be careful how we spend our time because it's a very precious commodity. We're all only allotted so much of it, so we're going to be careful how we spend our time. We're going to be God-conscious of our time. We're going to live like Jesus did with His time and do always those things which please the Father. We're going to be careful with our money. We're going to be careful. We're going to be kingdom spenders. We're going to lay up for ourselves treasures not on earth but in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart. Will be also. We're going to employ all of our assets into this great war that is raging for the glory of God and the salvation of the souls of men. That's what we're going to do. So, does that mean that we never get any time to rest or have fun? No. Does that mean we can't buy a nice truck or a nice set of clothes or build a big house? Is that what that means? No. But it does mean if we do those things, we're intentional about them. We're intentional about them. Our fun matters. Our rest matters. Our clothes matter. Our houses matter. All these things matter. And whatever God leads us, whatever God leads us to do, it will be for his glory. It will be an asset that's funneled to this great war that we're in. It will be for the glory of God. And so I'm not going to tell you what size to build your house or what brands of clothes you ought to wear. I've got a few items of Sitka. It's not cheap. But there's a lot to consider. Quality, longevity, endurance. And ultimately, what are the implications of these things? what, What resources do I have? How does God want me to spend them? So we're not going to be legalists, not going to tell you how big to build a house, not going to tell you what clothes to wear, what clothes not to wear, not going to tell you what forms of entertainment, you know, only this much Facebook scrolling or Instagram or whatever else. But I am going to mandate from the Lord that whatever you do with your time and whatever you do with your money, that you know and can stand in confidence before God that it is for his glory and that he's pleased with it. And it's only that that will give you confidence in the end that you did the will of God and can stand before him without shame. Quickly here, Satan has devised so many distractions, right? So many distractions to keep us from this glorious vision which produces in us this burning heart. Or to keep us from this burning heart, which produces this glorious vision. Satan has so many distractions. And one of the greatest distractions, we could spend all morning going over them. Maybe during uh, afterwards we can talk about some of these, because they matter. But one of the greatest distractions that Satan has devised are relationships. Relationships with friends, relationships with family. And this is why Jesus said in... Uh, Luke chapter 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Man, those are some harsh words, aren't they? Jesus, this isn't some radical street preacher. This is, well, he maybe was a radical street preacher, but this is Jesus. And he said that if you don't hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, even your own life, you can't be my disciple relationships are something that, that the, the enemy uses to keep us back, to hold us down, to keep us from burning, to keep us less than what God wants us to be, to keep us from fulfilling the purpose and the plan, the will of God. And John Piper was speaking once of, of Jim Elliot when he was 22 years old and fresh out of Wheaton College, and he had this burning heart and this call upon his life to go lay his life down to the Chickawa Indians in South America. And Jim was was burning and was ready to do this. He sensed God calling him. Well, his parents weren't happy at the news of... What his plans were, what this call of God was, his parents were pretty disappointed because when they looked at their son, when they looked at their son, Jim, they saw a handsome, intelligent, educated young man who could become a famous evangelist in America. He could become a professor at a prestigious university. He could become a pastor and faithfully and safely preach behind a pulpit in an American church and use his gifts in that way. Why, Jim, are you going to go throw your gifts away upon a tribe in South America? Listen to how Jim Elliott responded to his parents. This is a letter he wrote to his mom and dad. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us when he told the disciples that they have to become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said they were an heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who has his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's host. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to spread them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious, and all that thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Is that our hearts for our children? Is that our hearts for our children? Oh, that God would raise up more Jim Elliotts. You know, this isn't an option. I've already said it. This burning heart is not an option. It's not just for the elite. It's for all of us. Jesus, in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, in the prophetic, you could say it's Jesus. He says, woe to him who's at ease in Zion. Zion's the church. Woe to him who's at ease. Are you at the ease this morning? Amen. Amen. And if you are at ease, God forbid, but be honest because he already knows. If you're at ease this morning in the church, Jesus says, woe to you. Remember what he said to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3? He said, I wish that you were hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. No room in the church of God for ease. No room. We are a fellowship of burning hearts. That's what we are. I'm closing with this account from John G. Patton. Some of you have heard of John G. Patton, missionary in the South Seas to the cannibals there. I'm going to close with this account. Jonathan Edwards said there's two ways of representing and recommending true religion and virtue to the world. Two ways. And this is what those ways are. Jonathan Edwards said you can, you can represent and recommend tr- true religion um, and virtue to the world either by doctrine and precept or by instance and example. And he said the holy scriptures are abundantly filled with both of them. So in other words, when we're wanting to, to, to share truth with someone, communicate truth, you either do it by teaching, that's doctrine and precept, or you do it by, by your life, instance and example. You guys got that? So we're going to lift up an example here in closing from John G. Patton of the Burning Heart. Patton was 33 when he was ordained to preach in the New Hebrides, an island chain named by Captain James Cook, consisting of about 30 mountainous islands inhabited by heathens of the worst sort, violent, man-eating savages. He was 33. After visiting the islands and engaging in a skirmish with the natives in 1774, Cook declared that no one would ever venture to introduce Christianity because neither fame nor profit would offer the requisite inducement. But missionaries did come, many of whom were subsequently murdered by the islanders. Undaunted Patton arrived in 1858. Where 20 years earlier, the first missionaries to the island, John Williams and James Harris, were clubbed to death immediately upon disembarking their vessels. I could stop and preach for a while, but I won't. But just imagine this. You answer the call of God. You get to where you're supposed to go. You're clubbed to death and you die. And it's like it's over before it started. Is that failure? Is that failure? No. It was said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. So we give our lives. We give our lives. Patton's own trials as a missionary were epic, but through the worst, he responded as a true Christian and patriarch. He dealt with superstitions, with savagery, and with heart-wrenching sorrow, ever persevering with a Job-like trust in the sovereign will of God. With valor, he faced circumstances difficult for modern American Christians to comprehend. Not only did he lose his wife and son within months of his arrival, But he actually had to guard their graves for days to prevent the natives from exhuming their bodies and eating them. John Patton said this, The ever-merciful Lord sustained me to lay the precious dust of my beloved ones in the same quiet grave dug for them close by at the end of the house, in all of which last offices my own hands, despite breaking heart, had to take the principal share. I built a grave round and round with coral blocks and covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small as gravel. And that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of these savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, Men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears. I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my death with faith and hope. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, today called Vanuatu. This is a letter from John Piper. He was a missionary uh, to the New Hebrides, today called, uh, it's not Vanuatu, it's Vanuatu. I forget how to pronounce it, but it's in the South Seas. He was born in Scotland. Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. John Piper said, I write about him because of the courage he showed through his 82 years of life. I want to be courageous in the cause of Christ. I want you to be, and especially I want my children to be. So I ponder courage in others. Where does it come from? When I dig for the reasons that John Patton was so courageous, one reason I find is the deep love he had for his father. The tribute Patton pays to his godly father is by itself worth the price of his autobiography, which is still in print. Maybe it's because I have four sons, but I wept as I read this section. It filled me with such longing to be a father like this. There was a closet where his father would go for prayer as a rule after each meal. The 11 children knew it was knew it, and they reverenced the spot and learned something profound about God. The impact on John Patton was immense. John says this, Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe swept out from my memory, were blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God. It would hurl back all doubt and the victorious appeal. He walked with God, why may not I? How much my father's prayers at this time Impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. One scene best captures the depth of love between John and his father and the power of the impact of John's life of uncompromising courage and purity. The time came for the young Patton to leave home and go to Glasgow to attend Divinity School and become a city missionary in his early 20s. From his hometown of Tortherwald to train in Kilmarnock, was a 40-mile walk. 40 years later, Patton wrote this on their, on their walk. He said, my dear father walked with me The first six miles of the way, his counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And the tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to that scene for the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was in vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road <laughs> where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat and adieu, I was rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home and began to return. His head still uncovered. His heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then hasting on my way, vowed deeply deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as, as he had given me. See the difference between, no disrespect, but Jim Elliott's parents who discouraged him and John Patton's parents who sent him off in faith to be be eaten by cannibals as he shared the gospel. The appearance of my father when we parted, His advice, prayers and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it and the walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing as if it had been an hour ago. In my ear, earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no pharisaism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped, but by God's grace, not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure, to testify That the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I may not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. That I might faithfully follow his shining example. I want to be a father like John G. Patton's father was. I want my children to be like John G. Patton. John G. Patton burned. Why? Because he saw his father's shining example. And his father's shining example was because his father burned. And we're being called to burn this morning. And so I know we're going to go into an anointing service for our dear brother John. I sent him in a Facebook message the other day. I said, I, I pray that your burning heart keeps beating. And I believe it will, brother. I believe the Lord will raise you up and give you life because you still got much work to be done. And so we're going to believe God to heal him, that his burning heart will keep beating so he can keep burning and shining. And all of us, the invitation is open this morning. You don't have to come to the front. You can just bow your heart before God where you are. And we're going to pray together. But this doesn't have to be a hugely emotional experience. What it does have to be. You know, when we bow our hearts before God in humility and faith, he will ignite us. He will ignite us. It's what he delights to do. It's what Jesus is praying for. The only thing keeping Jesus' prayers from being answered in your life is you. So you bow in humility and faith and you say, make me thy fuel, O flame of God. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. And he'll do it. To light you on fire. So let's bow our, our heads together now before we turn it over to Joe. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, our God, are a consuming fire. You are a consuming fire. And God, all glory and honor, all praise and worship, all devotion and affection is due unto you. And I thank you, God, that you did send your son, Jesus, to redeem us from the hand of the enemy and that place of separation, captivity, and to bring us out and to clean us off and to cut all the cords of sin, break all the chains of sin and to fill us up with your spirit and make us burn. Jesus, you prayed that our righteousness would go forth as brightness and our salvation as a torch that is burning into all the earth until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Until all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And so I pray, Father, that right now every heart that is bowed before you as they submit themselves to you and ask in faith that you would light them on fire, that you would do it, God. Make us a people, right now, Lord, a people that burn with passion for your glory and for the victorious advance of your kingdom. Help everyone to repent who's been at ease and half-hearted and worldly-minded and living low. May there be repentance right now